Good to be with you, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark today. And then starting next week, we're going to do a three-week series on generosity. It's a series that Matt wanted to lead us through, but there's something happening with his throat right now. We don't exactly know what it is, and the doctors have advised that he stay out of preaching for a bit. And so if you guys could remember to pray for him this week, pray that God would heal him. Um, I know it's killing him not to be able to be here and to preach and bring God's word to us. And so let's remember to pray for him. And then after the generosity series, we're going to be back in Mark and we'll be back in Mark for the rest of the year. And so that's where we're going. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 31. And in it... We're going to see Jesus' prediction that um, Judas is going to betray him. We're going to see Jesus' prediction of Judas' betrayal. But not only that, we're going to see Jesus predict that the rest of his disciples are going to fall away. Not just Judas will betray him, but the rest of his disciples are going to fall away. And isn't that an unbelievable thing? If you think about it. You know, if anybody throughout the course of human history has been discipled properly, it was the 12, right? If anybody has been taught properly, if anybody has been trained up correctly, it was the 12. And not only that, if anybody has been cared for thoughtfully, if anybody has been loved on intimately, it was the 12. Jesus absolutely poured out his life onto these 12 men for three years. And entering into his last week, Here on earth, he says, one of you is going to betray me, and the rest of you are going to fall away. And so I think one of the main questions that Mark wants us to ask as we look at this text today is, how do we know we're going to persevere? How do we know we're going to persevere to the end? If the 12 got Jesus in the flesh every day for three years, think about that. Meeting with Jesus every day for three years. And if their result was betrayal and falling away, what's our hope? What's our hope? You may believe today, but will you believe tomorrow? You may be believing today, but will you be believing five years from now? On your deathbed, as you're breathing your last, will you be believing then? You may be fighting now, you may be fighting sin, fighting against temptation now, but eventually will the temptations of this world and all the promises that it has for you, will it eventually wear you down until little by little you give yourself over, until you found that you've completely given yourself over to the promises that the world has for you? Many of us in this room, we know people in our lives that have done exactly that. They used to walk with Jesus. They used to say they loved Jesus. You used to see them fight sin. But little by little, you saw them walking away. And now you see that they've completely walked away. They've completely sold away Jesus to get something else. Jesus said that in the end, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will you endure, church? Will you persevere to the end? Will you be saying with your last breath, Jesus, whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's no one on earth that I desire besides you. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Will that be the last cry of your heart as you're closing your eyes for the last time? Or will you close your eyes for the last time in great fear, not knowing what you're going to see next? Will you persevere? Will you endure to the end? And what's your response? What are you thinking right now? Are you thinking, of course I'll persevere. I I know I'm going to make it. I, I love Jesus. Is that your response? While others of us, your heart's pounding. And you feel that fear. And you're saying, I feel the doubt even now. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it till the end. But I don't want to go to hell. These are the two extreme responses we could have when assessing and contemplating our perseverance. Either I'm good, I'm not worried, I I know I'm going to make it, I love Jesus. This is my bent. In my weak moments, I have a tendency to treat sin lightly and assume upon God's grace and just think, oh, I'm good, you don't have to worry, I'm going to make it. While others of us, we think, oh, oh my gosh, you're right, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I fear it every day. When I sin, I wonder, how in the world is God going to forgive this sin? And this is my wife's, Angela's bent. She'll fail, she'll sin in some way in her weak moments. She'll struggle wondering if she's even saved at all. And me, like a good husband, I'll minister to her with my bent. I'll say, oh, you're good. You love Jesus. God loves you. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. But, but both of us are wrong, aren't we? If you're a Christian here today, if you're in Christ today, both of these responses are wrong. And it's showing us that we're lacking in something. And so what's, what's your bent? What's your tendency? What are you lacking in? If you're thinking, I'm good, you don't have to worry about me, I know I'm going to make it, I think we're lacking an understanding of our own sinfulness. I don't think we quite understand how deep the veins of sin run into our hearts, how deceitful, how dark sin is in our hearts. Or if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I, I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think God could forgive me. I think what you're lacking is an understanding of God's faithfulness. I don't think you're quite understanding the finality of what Jesus actually did for you on the cross and the great love with which he loves you. And in today's text, we're going to see Jesus revealing to us both of these truths, both of these realities. First, that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. We think we're sinners, we're sinful, but no, we're wrong. We're even more sinful than we could ever imagine. But second, God is more faithful than we ever dare dream. We think God is faithful. No, we're wrong. He's even more faithful than we ever dared dream. You see, the solution to uh, the sin problem that the world has for us is by telling us, oh, you're not that bad. It's really not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's because of your upbringing. But the solution that the gospel has to our sin problem is to tell us you are that bad and even worse. But, but, God is even more faithful than you ever dared dream. That's the gospel solution to our sin problem. When we look at Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 16, it gives us the setting. 
We're entering into Jesus' last week, and we see that Jesus is going to be betrayed. But we see that not only are the chief priests and the scribes those on the outside plotting to kill Jesus, but we see that in verse 10, Judas, someone on the inside, is plotting to betray Jesus. And all of this is happening in the context of Israel's national holiday of Passover. Once a year, they would eat the Passover meal to celebrate the greatness of God in rescuing them out of Egypt so many years ago. It was a time of great celebration, great joy, and awe of remembering how God overthrew the most powerful empire that the world had known at the time to bring his chosen people out to rescue them from sin and, and bondage. It, it was a time to party. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so it's celebration time. Everyone's having a great time eating and drinking with Jesus. And then seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus says, you know one of you is going to betray me. And it would have been better for that person never to have been born. Well, there goes the party, right? The, <laughs> the party is ruined. But you know what? Jesus doesn't care that he just ruined the party. Because he knows that sin undealt with will ruin their eternity. He doesn't care if he just ruined the party because he knows that sin undealt with will ruin their eternity. What we see here is that Jesus doesn't remain quiet about your sin. He takes our sin very, uh, very seriously. Jesus doesn't remain quiet about our sin because he knows that the only way we're going to persevere is if we have an intimate knowledge of our own sinfulness. We've gotten comments in the past here at the church, and maybe you're feeling it even now. You're thinking, oh, here we go. We're going to talk about sin again. Why do we have to preach so much about sin at this church? Why can't we just skip past all that bad stuff and go straight into God's love and his grace? You know, many of us, if we're honest, we just want to come here on Sunday and be encouraged and walk out of here feeling happy and good. We don't want to listen about sin. We don't want to think about sin. It's a downer. It doesn't immediately make us feel great. You're, you're thinking, please don't ruin my Sunday. It's my only day off. Don't ruin my Sunday. But church, listen, Jesus doesn't care if he's ruining your Sunday. He doesn't care if he's ruining your Sunday by pointing out some sin in your life because he knows that that sin undealt with will ruin your eternity. And so we're instructed by Jesus here. If there was ever a time not to talk about sin, if there was ever a time just not to bring it up, it was at this time. Because this was Jesus' last supper with his friends. This is the last time he's going to have dinner with his friends. And not only that, it was a time of celebrating, celebrating God's faithfulness and, and rescuing them. And so if there was ever a time just to kind of let sin go, if there was ever a time just to not bring it up, not to mention it, it was at this time and in this dinner. This dinner. But Jesus doesn't leave it alone. 
Jesus doesn't remain quiet about their sin. And I say about their sin, not just Judas's sin. You may be thinking, what do you mean their sin? Isn't Jesus just pointing out Judas's sin? Well, if the whole point of Jesus bringing this up was to simply point out Judas' sin, he could have said, you know, one of you is going to betray me, and it's you, it's you, Judas. Right? He could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, he keeps saying, one of you, one of the 12. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Well, they're all eating with him. Verse 20, one of the 12. Jesus is purposefully being ambiguous. Because he wants every single one of the 12 to consider that it could be one of them. By saying a one of the 12, he's immediately ruling out in the minds of his disciples those on the outside. Right? If Jesus would have said, you know, somebody, someone is going to betray me without saying one of the 12, what would his disciples have said? They would have said, what do you mean someone, somebody? We know a hundred people are trying to betray you, Jesus. By saying one of the 12, he's pointing out that when it comes to sin, we have to see ourselves as the main culprit. We can't think about sin as something that's done out there by those other people. We have to primarily see sin as something that's done in here by us. When we think about sins, the first sins that ought to come to mind are our own, are our own sins. We can't exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We can't exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We can't ever get to a place where we say, oh, I could never do that. How many of us have seen something done by someone and thought to ourselves, oh, I could never do that? That's why we're so judgmental. If I were to ask you, who's the biggest sinner that you know? Who comes to mind? Who's the biggest sinner that you know? If I were to ask you, who's the person in your life that has the most potential to sell Jesus away to get something else? Who comes to mind? Someone out there? Some college friend of yours that's partying all the time? Some neighbor of yours that just got caught cheating on her husband? Who, who comes to mind? Someone out there? Well, Jesus wants us to, when we think about the greatest sinner, when we think about the person who has the most potential to sell away Jesus, he doesn't want someone else to come to mind. He wants us to come to mind. He wants us to ask, is it me, Lord? Is it I? Could I be the one that trades you away? Verse 19 tells us, they began to be sorrowful, the disciples, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Jesus, by saying one of you, one of the 12, he's produced exactly what he wanted to in the hearts of his disciples. A personal, individual self-examination of the possibility, could it be me, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one? And here, Jesus is inviting us to ask that same question of us. Let's not miss out on the opportunity. He wants each of us to ask that same question. Is it me, Lord? Could I be the one that sells you away to get something else? Is it I? But some of you may be saying, but you don't understand. You don't know how close to Jesus I am. Do you know how much I love Jesus and I would do anything for Jesus? Sure, I sin just like everybody else, but I could never do what Judas did. 
Some of us are thinking that. I could never do what Judas did. But don't you see this text is exactly for you? This text isn't for people on the outside, those who feel far away from Jesus. This text is for people on the inside, the people who feel the closest to Jesus, the people who are are most committed to Jesus. Who is Jesus talking to? The 12. The 12. There was nobody more close to Jesus than the 12. And what Jesus says to the 12 is he says, this gravest sin of betraying me I want the gravest sins to be considered by those who are the closest to me. Do you feel close to Jesus? Do you feel committed to Jesus? He wants you to consider the possibility of you committing the gravest sins, of betraying Jesus. Tim Keller, preaching on this text, said that when it comes to the understanding of our sinfulness, it's not enough to just ask, what have I done? But also, what am I capable of doing if I was under certain threats, certain temptations, certain pressures, and certain opportunities? Could I produce great evil under certain circumstances which I haven't experienced yet? And the Bible says, yes, we can. Just this past summer, my wife Angela had an opportunity to go on a mission trip with the women's development program here at the Stone and to go and minister to Muslim women to go and share the gospel with them for about 10 days. And I was on sabbatical at the time, which meant that I had the great opportunity to have daddy daycare for about 10 days. And I love my children, and I'm crazy about them, but the problem with my children are that they are five, four, and two. And my oldest son, Malachi, he's, he's a really good kid. Um, just really good, no complaints about him. but. But my daughter, Evie, she's four. She's just a complete diva. And my youngest two, Mojo, we call him Mojo, he is just feral. He's just crazy. Just, I just find him gnawing on stuff, you know. He's, he's crazy. And, and so on day six or seven, I'm just exhausted, you know. I'm, I'm just wondering, how in the world, Angela, do you do this every day? I'm writing her thank you notes every night. And this one particular night, I'm just at an end. You know, I just want them to go away. Just want them to go to sleep, you know. And parents, have you been there? You just keep looking at the clock and going, when's bedtime? It's 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. That's good enough. It's late enough. Let's put them to, put them to bed. So at 6 o'clock, I put them to bed. And it's seriously, 6 o'clock. They're not tired. They're not sleeping. So they keep getting out of bed. And after about the second or third time, I just lose it. I just go in their room, start yelling like a lunatic. I say, stay in bed. If you get out of bed one more time, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> and, and Malachi's like, yes, sir. And Moses like, <laughs> just, just, he just doesn't, he just doesn't care, you know. And, um, you know, before, before I became a dad, I never imagined that I would become that dad. You know, you see, you see these parents at the grocery stores sometimes, this mom or dad, just losing. They're just yelling at their kids. They don't care who's there. They're just yelling. And you're like, what's wrong with you? You need a Jesus. You need to get saved. And, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking the whole time, I would never do that. But under certain circumstances and certain pressures, it happened, Right? 
that sin was always in there. I was always capable of it. The, the circumstances and the pressures that didn't create that sin in me, the circumstances and the pressures that revealed that sin in me, it was always there, tucked away, hidden. So when it comes to contemplating our sinfulness, we can't just look at the bad things we've done. We have to look at the bad things we're capable of. You may never betray Jesus, but you have to at least understand that apart from God's grace and under certain circumstances and certain pressures, you're at least capable of it. It's in you. That's how sinful we are. We can't ever underestimate the power and the deceitfulness of our own flesh. Don't ever underestimate your sinfulness. Your sinfulness wants you to get to a place where you say, I would never do that. That's what it wants. We are all more sinful than we could ever imagine. So that's the first thing that Jesus reveals to us to equip us to persevere to the end, our own sinfulness. But that alone won't do it, right? Knowing our sinfulness is absolutely critical to persevering to the end. But if we just know our sinfulness, we're not going to persevere. Instead, when we sin, we'll just downward spiral into hopelessness and darkness and shame. Something else has to be revealed to us. What is that? It's his faithfulness. God's faithfulness. In the midst of the sins all around that he's just revealed in his disciples, revealed in us, Jesus provides the solution. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's the solution? His faithfulness. The solution to the disciples' sin problem, the solution to our sin problem is Jesus saying, look, here is my body broken for you. Here is my blood poured out for you. That's the solution. And I wonder if as we hear that even today, I wonder if we feel the awe of that solution. We were sinners but Christ died for us. We were sinners, but Christ died for us. Do you feel the awe of that solution? Or has the death of Jesus somehow lost its preciousness in your life? Or has the cross of Jesus just become common somehow and lost its luster in your life? In verse 21, right before this, Jesus has just referred to himself as the son of man as he often does throughout the Gospels. He he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an Old Testament title. And if you and I were wondering, why is Jesus called the Son of Man? We could be thinking, well, because he was born into this world and he loves the world and he loves humanity. And so maybe that's why he's called the Son of Man, because he, he loves people, right? But for the disciples at the time and the Israelites living at this time, the the, the title Son of Man meant something entirely different. If you look at the Old Testament, the title Son of Man is not a figure who faces persecution and trial and death. That's not the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Son of Man is someone who dwells in the clouds of heaven. Verse 13. 
The Son of Man is someone who is presented before God and then God gives to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. That's the Son of Man. Son of Man's dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is not betrayed. He's not beaten. He's not spit upon. He's not hung on the cross like a common criminal. That is not the Son of Man. But if you look at the Old Testament, and again, you see something else over and over and over you see a lamb that is slain. It happened all those years ago when the people of God would sacrifice a lamb and the lamb would act as a substitute to die the death that they deserved because they sinned against God. It happened all those years ago in Egypt when the people of God would sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on their doorpost. And when God sent the angel of death, the angel of death would come, see the blood, and would pass over. That's what's called the Passover. Would pass over their homes and not kill because he saw the substitution of the lamb. See, here's the weight of the Passover meal. Here's the weight of the solution to our sin problem that Jesus wants us to feel. The weight that he wants us to feel as he says to us, I'm the son of man, but here is my body broken for you. Here is my blood poured out for you. The weight that he wants us to feel and the glorious reality that he wants us to see is that the Son of Man, to whom belongs all glory and honor and dominion, was willing to become the Lamb that was slain. That's the weight. The Son of Man was willing to become the Lamb of God. You see, the only pathway, the only possible pathway to us being saved, our salvation, was if the Son of Man was willing to become the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If the Son of Man was unwilling to become the Lamb of God, there would be no salvation for us, much less perseverance. The Son of Man condescending himself to become the Lamb of God. In that, we see God's ultimate act of faithfulness towards us. In that, we see Jesus' ultimate commitment to us. If we're going to endure, if we're going to persevere to the end, we have to see that our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. But not just that, right? We have to see that we are sinful. See, if we just saw that we are sinful, when we sin, we wouldn't persevere. We would, just pers- we would just downward spiral into hopelessness. But if we just see that God is faithful, we won't persevere either because we'll treat sin lightly. We'll take grace as common and we'll trample on the blood of Jesus poured out for us. We have to understand both. We have to understand that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but that God is more faithful than we ever dare dream. We have to understand both. It's only then that we'll persevere to the end. It's only then that when we sin, we won't spiral down because we see that God is faithful. It's only then that we won't treat sin lightly and treat grace as common because we see the sin in our lives. All the sins we've committed, not only that, but all the sins we're capable of committing against him. Only then. So after all of this, what's our application for today? 
is our application. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness, even in the midst of my own sinfulness. Thank you for your commitment to me, and so I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going I'm to so devote myself to you that I'll never fall away from you. Is that our application? You know, many of us are living that application. Many of us are, are saying, God, because of what you have done for me, now I'm going to do this for you. Because of the way that you're committed to me, now I'm going to commit myself to you. I promise I won't ever do that again. I promise I'll keep doing I promise I'll read my Bible every day. Promises and promises. Is that our application? Well, that was Peter's application. Verse 26. And when they had hung, sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It is clear by looking at this text that Peter has grown in his understanding of Jesus. He's grown in his trust of Jesus. We see that Peter is not the man that he used to be. Why do I say that? Because remember the first time when Jesus told Peter that he's going to die and go to the cross? What was Peter's response? Peter rebuked him. He said, may it never be, far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to die. But we see here when Jesus tells him he's going to die, what's his response? He doesn't rebuke Jesus, but instead he says, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never leave you. We see that Peter is not the man that he used to be, but we also see that Peter is not the man he ought to be. Why? He's not the man that he ought to be because he's placing his confidence in persevering where? In his own ability not to fall away, right? He's placing his confidence in his ability to say, I will never leave you, Jesus. He's not placing his confidence in Jesus' ability to keep him, but in his ability to not leave Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that Peter and the rest of his disciples will fall away. He knows this. Before he goes to the cross, he knows that they'll fall away. But what does he say? Almost nonchalantly, he says, I know all of you are going to fall away. But after I'm raised, I will come to you. After I'm raised, I'll come meet with you. I'll, I'll see you again. Almost nonchalantly. Isn't abandoning Jesus at the time of his greatest suffering and pain a grave sin? Why is Jesus treating the sin like this? Shouldn't he at least say, you know, you're going to leave me when I need you most. And so after I'm raised from the dead, I better hear a lot of I'm sorry's. I better see a lot of remorse. Shouldn't Jesus at least say that? But he doesn't. He simply says, you're all going to fall away, but after I'm raised, I will come to you. Why does he say that? Why is he able to say that? Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the key to what Jesus had just said? What's the key? After I am raised. After I am raised. So what has he just done? What has he just did? He, he just died on the cross. 
He just paid the full penalty of sin against them, right? He drank the full cup of God's wrath against them. He drank it to the every last drop. There was no condemnation left over for them. And so many of us, we sin. We gravely sin. And we think, Jesus, you can never forgive that sin. But what happened here? Jesus knew those closest to him even would gravely sin. And he said, but I'm still going to the cross for you. Jesus knew every single sin that you would ever commit against him. And still, he went to the cross for you. Church, many of you, like Peter, you've changed. You're not the person that you used to be. That's a good thing. But you can't place the hope of your perseverance on the fact that you're just a better person now. You can't find confidence in your perseverance in the fact that you're just a better person now because you will fall again, just like Peter did, right? Just in new ways this time. You know, we get to these moments, we will fall and we'll sin and, and we'll say, God, I'll never do it again, right? I promise I'll never do it again, right? But we do it again. And every time we sin, every time we mess up, we see that we're even greater sinners than we ever imagined, right? But what does God do? He knew when you prayed that you would never do it again, he knew you would do it again. And yet knowing it all, he still went to the cross. As God comes to us over and over and over again, what we realize is that God is even more faithful. He's even more faithful than we ever dared dream. And so you don't have to live in fear today. For, the, for those of us living in fear, every time you sin, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if God's going to forgive this one. You don't have to live in fear today because God is faithful. He's more faithful than you ever dared dream. And there is a way for us to be confident today. There's a way for us to be confident and absolutely sure that we're going to make it to the end but that confidence is not to be found in ourselves, in our ability to say, Jesus, I'm going to commit my life to you and I'll never 